Christians have gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Christ for over 2,000 years on Sunday. Have you ever considered why Christians worship on Sunday? Why don't we worship on Monday? Or Tuesday? Or Wednesday? Why is it that we particularly gather on Sundays, of all days of the week? In fact, if you look at the way the nation of Israel worshiped, they didn't worship on the Sunday, but rather on Saturday. So why did we not follow in that tradition, worshiping on the Sabbath day? Why, why was it that the early Christians, from the very beginning, from the very first gathering of Christians, that they worship on Sunday? Why was it that of all the days, was chosen Sunday, the first day of the week. That This wasn't a particular day that would have been convenient for them. It was the first day of the week. Like our Monday, so was their Sunday. And so they had to work around their schedules. They had their work that they had to go do on that Sunday morning. But yet, they chose to inconvenience themselves, to set aside work for that day, to, to perhaps go without wages. Imagine this morning if you were to, if we were to begin to worship on Monday mornings, what that would look like in your life, how that might uh, affect your paycheck on Friday. If you were to begin to tell your boss, uh, sorry, my, my religion, uh, the, my Savior, I, I worship him on Monday, and unfortunately I can't be at work today, and so I can't clearly get paid. So why would Christians choose to do such a thing? Friends, as you may already know, it is because it was the day the Lord Jesus rose from the grave. Amen. And Christians have for, since that day, imagine this for a moment, since that day, Christians have gathered seamlessly on every Sunday on the calendar, every single one, not one miss, have gathered together every single Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A reordering of their entire life, their entire schedules, even at the expense of gold and money and treasures. That's how important the resurrection of Christ is. That's how important it is that, that early Christians recognize that we need to reorder, we need to reorganize our entire life because this is a big deal. And sadly, Christians, we often shuffle the resurrection away one particular day, Easter Sunday. Friends, Christians have gathered to celebrate every Sunday. If you're visiting with us this morning, we just are glad you're here. And we just want you to know that, in fact, every Sunday for us as a congregation is Easter. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ because that is our hope. That's why we are not afraid of the grave. We know the grave is not the end. I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I invite you to grab that pew Bible in front of you. Turn to page, page 853. It will serve you well to have your Bible open or have a Bible open. Look at these words. We're going to be down at the bottom of that page on verse 42. If you're not used to looking at God's word, the 
The larger numbers in the Bible are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're in verse 42, so just look for that small number 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, did, excuse me, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have died already, or already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether Jesus was already dead. And when Pilate learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph brought linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. They said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. We have arrived at the end of Mark's Gospel. As shockingly as it began, so suddenly it ends. With fear, amazement, and with silence, Mark concludes. This is the end. Sudden, shock. Verses 9 through 20 are not found in the oldest manuscripts. Therefore, we do not believe that they are inspired. So I will not be preaching on those words. Those were clearly added much later and were not original to Mark. Mark's abrupt and unexpected ending is exactly what he wanted. It serves as a literary device to cause you and I to be shocked makes clear that the disciples did not expect the resurrection. The disciples didn't go to the tomb that day saying, Jesus isn't going to be here. Clearly, Mary and the rest of the women did not expect Jesus to be risen. After all, they brought spices to anoint his body. No, the shocking end is, is meant here. Meant here to ask the question. we ponder how they responded to the resurrection of Christ, the question then becomes for you, how would you respond? How, how 
will they respond? What will they do? Where will they go? What will, will they go and tell Peter and the other disciples that he's risen? What will they do? More importantly, what will you do? As you consider an empty tomb, do you consider that a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified at the hands of the Roman government, who was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, a man who you could have gone up and asked, he was a respected man, he wasn't a liar, he didn't steal Jesus' body, this was all open, people went to Pilate, is Jesus really dead? The coroner gave the report. He's dead. Everyone knew he was dead. You and I could have get a time machine and go back and ask Pilate these questions, and he would verify every bit of it. Yes, Jesus was dead, and no, his disciples didn't steal his body and hide it in the desert. Joseph of Marathathea hid it and it put him in his own tomb. And that tomb is now. So, what are we to make of this? The point of this sermon is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was dead and buried, but was raised for our justification. So as we consider the burial and resurrection of Jesus, we, we meditate and kind of think about what, what are we. Um, so if you're kind of new to this, we've been spinning... Um, 62 sermons that we've had, we've heard from Mark's gospel. We've gone from the very first word to this very last one, verse 8. And we've considered this grand story uh, uh, that Mark is telling. And, and we know that Mark is writing to Christians. He's, he's writing to a church in Rome under persecution because of their faith. He's writing to Christians who are suffering. And, and so this news about the resurrection of Christ didn't come to them like, wow, this is amazing. We didn't expect this. They knew that. It was cause of reflection. And so as we think about the burial and the resurrection of Christ in our text, I want us to look at three reminders for us this morning. Three reminders that I hopefully will help us to reflect in a way of application to the death and resurrection of Christ. First, I want us to consider a humbling reminder cost of our sin. Second, we will consider a joyful reminder that sin no longer defines us. And then third and finally, we will consider a hopeful reminder. A hopeful reminder that there is life after sin. There is life after sin. First, a, humbly, a humble reminder. And so the passage is this, and, and the exhortation is this, humbly remember the cost of your sin. Let's consider these first few verses in verses 42 through 47. It's a somber picture, isn't it? It's quite sad. It's full of poignant words. There Jesus is, lifeless, hanging on the cross. Bloody, beaten. We have considered that it was for our sin. There was nothing in him that deserved that. And then, even as you see Joseph of Arimathea taking his body 
down from the cross we were told. Joseph goes and actually takes his body down and lays Jesus lifeless. The one who created life, the one who Paul tells us in, first, in Colossians 1.15 was the one who created all things. The one who gave life to you laid lifeless on the ground as Joseph covered his body with a shroud. Oh, it is a sombering picture. I remember when I first moved to Maryland, one of the first things uh, my family and I did is take a trip to D.C. There we went to Arlington. What can be one of the most sombering sights in all of this nation? If you look out, see those white tombstones just glistening in the sun, it causes you to be overwhelmed with the costliness of your freedom, right? That freedom that we take for granted when we're shopping at Walmart. So the freedom we have as we sit here today, worshiping, not, not afraid that a tank's going to come rolling down Main Street and blow us up. The freedom that we enjoy today. And as you look out, that those tombstones just cause you to, to be grateful and, and humble that those men and women would give themselves for the sake of others. Friends, it reminds us of a greater death. Man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin. It reminds us that our lives, though they're short, are also valuable. This morning, you were created in the image of God. Your life is valuable. Your life is meaningful. You know, you your life doesn't become meaningful because you do something. Because you invent something. Or because you work somewhere and you, you produce something. No, your value is inherent in who you are because you're created in the image of God. That's what our founding fathers believed. It's also what Scripture teaches us in this passage. The, the one, the creator, is there laying lifeless. Why? We're not told by Mark why, because we already know why. In fact, Mark told us back in chapter 10, verse 34, through the words of Jesus, Jesus said, I did not come into the world to be served. I didn't come to be a king the way you think I came to be a king. Now, the kind of king I came to be isn't one that was going to set up an army and obliterate my enemies. No, I was going to choose. I chose a different means. I came to die on a cross, and there on that cross, I would destroy my enemies. And what appears in this here to be a quite pathetic picture, if you think about it. For us as Christians, it is sombering, it is humbling, but, but if you think about it from a negative, this picture is quite pathetic. Jesus, I thought you were Superman. I thought you were the man of speech. I thought you were the king of kings and the lord of lords. I thought you were the one who was going to defeat sin and death. 
What are you going to do laying on the ground dead? Friends, what we see in this picture is a picture of fulfillment. 500 years before Jesus died for the sins of the world, Isaiah prophesied this, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Christ Jesus' death was a fulfillment of that prophecy. We're told that by Mark that Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. He was a part of the council that killed Jesus, that that trumped up the charges against Jesus. Although we understand that Joseph and another brother, Nicodemus, were not a part of it, they were nonetheless a part of the council, the larger ruling body there. We are told that he was a rich man. A wealthy man would have had a grave like Joseph had. As we consider in this passage and as I've said over the last couple weeks, there is so much that we could say and so little time to say them. We could spend eternity dwelling here on this sacred ground. Friends, I want you to see something very clear. That Christ Jesus went to the cross, he died on the cross as a sinner. For the sins of the world, for your sins and my sin. Paul tells us that for our sake, God made him to be sin. So I want you to see the end game here. I want you to see where sin always will lead. To death. To death. Christ Jesus was made sin and died. Sin's end game is a grave. Sin will always leave you smelling like a rotten corpse. Sin will never leave you alone. So we hear this often quoted, but yet helpful. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Friends, that is the truth of this passage. Here is the end game of Satan. This is what Satan wants for you. He wants to see you lifeless because of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 3, Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death. But sin promises life, doesn't it? Sin promises joy. It promises satisfaction. When we sit and we contemplate our lives and think, you know, I'm going to do this. I think it would be good for me. But Satan is a liar. He has been a liar from the beginning. He lied to Adam and Eve when he told them that if they ate of the tree, that they would become like God. And he lies to you today, yeah. telling you that sin will bring happiness to your soul. The end game of sin will always and forever be death. So you may have gotten away with sin in your life. There may be sin that you committed. So heinous that you wouldn't speak about it in public. Thoughts you've had in your mind, so, so treacherous and so evil and so wicked, you wouldn't even share it with the closest friend. In fact, you probably wouldn't even share it with God. You think you've got me. You 
You think you got away with it. You think that 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 sin that you committed, that, that those evil acts that you did, will never be known. No one will ever find out about it. That's one of the biggest lies you see. That you can remain in darkness. That you can hide. Friends, the truth is that Jesus also was made sin. He bore the wrath of God for our sin. He died. Friends, it causes us to just be humble. There is humility in the cross of Christ. There, there, there is humility as we sit and see the lifeless body of Jesus there. As just the consider as Joseph is taking that body, limp and floppy, and flops it on the ground, taking all the care he can, and wraps him for our sin. For our iniquity, he is there. For our sin. Humbly remember the cost of your sin. Today, when you're tempted to sin, remember the lifeless body of Christ who died for your sin. Let's consider, secondly, a joyful reminder. I know that was bleak. I know that, that was sad. I know that was difficult. Joyfully remember. Joyfully remember. Joyfully remember that sin no longer defines you. Friends, we celebrate the death of Christ. We also celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so we may have just laid it on a little heavy there about sin, about getting away with sin. There's joy in the resurrection of Christ this morning. Joyfully remember that sin no longer defines you. What do I mean? Where do we see that in this passage? Look with me, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Why did Mark say all that? Why did we need to know that? Why couldn't he have just said some women went to anoint Jesus' body? Why did the Spirit of God inspire Mark to write all the details surrounding it? We might consider, like, this is a narrative, you know, it's helpful to know what's going on, where the characters are going there. There might be a literary helpfulness here. Friends, I think the point he's making here is that a new day is done. Notice, twice he says that it's a new day. Twice, in verse 2. Very early, on the first day, when the sun had arisen. So it's not only early in the morning, it's the first day of the week, it's a brand new day. More than that, the sun is coming up. More than that, as we consider the darkness of, excuse me, the darkness of the death of Christ, as we consider the, the, the somberness and the humility there, that we see 
few days ago. The sun came up again. Consider the king of glory, the one who created the cosmos, laying lifeless in a tomb, but yet the sun comes up. How is this possible? Because the sun is no longer in the tomb. The light of the new day has broken through the darkness of Good Friday. It's now Sunday. There's a new day. But this idea of newness, of, of renewal and revitalization and renewing work is something the Bible often talks about in the Old Testament. Often in the Old Testament it talks about how when a new day comes, it's a reminder of God's renewing work. So David extols in Psalm 30. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I think Psalm 30 is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. It's anger. God's wrath against his son. God's anger because of sin is but for a moment. The death of Christ was but for a moment. It's not only joyful because it's a new day and, the, and as we'll see the king of glory reign, but also we are told about the women here. Do you notice how often Mark refers to these women back in verse 47, then in verse 1? These women would have been known to Mark's readers. They would have been known to the church there in Rome, particularly because they were eyewitnesses to the account of the resurrection. Now, as you consider in the first century, different than ours, right? So in our 21st century, you know, if we, for example, don't only take the testimony of men, for example. So if you're a woman today, uh, you know, we believe what you said, right? In the first century, in the court of law, in a court, they would have taken a woman and her testimony. Very rarely would they have used a woman uh, as an eyewitness to something. But Mark here uses it not only for the death of Christ, to be an eyewitness to the burial of Christ, but Mark also uses it as an eyewitness account to the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Mark, unlike the other gospel writers, do not include the eyewitness account of Peter and the, the, the brothers on the road to Emmaus, and, and as Paul says, the 500 other brothers who, who, and sisters who saw the resurrected Christ. Mark appeals to these women for a particularly theological point, and I think it's this. To remind you that sin no longer defines you. These women were not the ones you wanted your boys to go hang out with. In fact, Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene used to be possessed by seven demons. She was a wicked woman. Her and her companions there were once, perhaps, those who worshipped demons. These women had once been defined by their sin. They had once been known by their evil and wickedness. People in town would talk about them. Everyone knew who they were. They stayed away from them like the prostitute in Proverbs 6. Friends, the truth is, is that sin often defines who we are. 
And we, are we are remembered more by our sinful actions oftentimes than by our good deeds. Our friends long remember the wickedness and wildness of our former ways. Our sinful actions leave truly a lasting legacy. Not only upon our names, but oftentimes upon our children, our children's children. Consider how many generations are affected because of one bad parent. Yeah. One bad parent will spoil four generations. And it's like an unbroken cycle that can't be broken because wickedness leaves a lasting legacy. Sin comes with consequences. Clearly, it's true. And so it was with these women. These women would not have been afraid to tell us what evil they once practiced. How they once rebelled against the eternal God of the universe. How once they spit in the face of Jesus and wanted nothing to do with them, but no longer. Brothers and sisters, there is joy in this passage. That sin no longer defines you if you are in Christ. You may come this morning with great burden. The remembrance of sin often causes pain. No longer is sin to define who you and I are. No longer are we sinners, but we are now saints. Not because we are holy, not because we have done something glorious in us, but because of the joy of the resurrection, because new life is brought out of death. Brothers and sisters, I hope today you do not leave of all days to spare over your sin if you are in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, there is no joy for you today. If you are not walking with Christ Jesus today, there is only bitterness for your soul. No sunrise for you. Only darkness remains. No new day, no joy. And friend, I do not want to offer you joy today if you are unwilling to turn from I do not want you to, to leave here thinking that, oh, because I heard a nice sermon or because I went to church on Easter, that somehow God loves me. He's happy with me. And it doesn't matter how I live my life the rest of the, the next 364 days until next Easter. But, oh, friend, if you are in sin today, you can have life. And you can have the joy that these women had. That they knew their Savior no longer looked on their sin, no longer looked on their evil, but he had freed them through his resurrection. You can have the joy of the resurrection today by repenting of your sins and trusting in the finished work of Christ. Trust in the gospel today. Turn your heart from him. Stop living your way. consider thirdly and finally hopefully remember that there is life after sin. Hopefully. Now, when I say hopefully, I don't mean well, hopefully uh, I get that new job. Hopefully um, you know, things go well for me this week. Well, ho hopefully I get an A on the test. We use the word hope wish. But what the resurrection of Christ affords
towards us is not a wish of life after death, but an expectation, a certainty of life after death. The certainty that death is not the final end. That, that the grave is not the, the end of place for us. It's not the end game for us. In fact, for those that are in Christ Jesus, we never face death. Our souls will never die. Our eternity is already begun in Christ. If you're in Christ today, the hope of the resurrection is, is that your eternal life has already begun. It's not something that you're waiting to receive in the future. It's yours today. So we see here words of hope as the women traveled. We are told as they arrived at that tomb, they were met and startled by a man. John tells us there was two. John, in fact, tells us that the man was an angel. Mark doesn't tell us that, though we can surmise that because of his clothes. He was dressed in a white robe. Verse 5, we were told that they were alarmed, and he tells them, look what, they, look what he says to them. This is where I'm getting that hope from, the hope of life after sin. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. You've come to the wrong place. You've come to the wrong place. Look, look where he was laid. See the place where they laid him. Verse 7, the command will go. Will go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you. There's words of hope here. Imagine as they went that day. They didn't have hope. Mm -hmm. Truly in a room this size, many have lost loved ones. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, children. We don't get over it. Spices because Jesus was still dead for them. For them, Jesus was still lifeless there in their temple. But as they were we met with this stark and revolutionary thought, Jesus had told them already that this would happen. Pass right over. So often, when the Lord Jesus speaks to us, Miss it. They miss it. Jesus had told them that the, the night before he was betrayed, he told them as he gathered with his disciples and with those women, he told them that he would die, but that he would go before them again in Galilee. He told them this. They knew that this would happen, but they did not listen. But there is hope in this. There is yet. had denied. The rest of the disciples ran scared. It's only the women who came. And friends, it is a reminder to you and I that the cross of Christ is not the end. That is, there is still life after the cross. Hope is not lost. The leader was not. And friends, the truth is, there is no hope for us today without the resurrection of Christ. 
If there is no resurrection of Christ, we shall all just go home now yeah. and never come again. But Christ Jesus has been raised. He has. There's hope. The resurrection of Christ vindicates every claim Jesus made. If Jesus is still dead, then don't believe anything Mark has told you up to this point. Don't believe that he's the king of kings. Don't believe that he's come to usher in the kingdom of God. Don't believe that he is the son of God. Don't believe any of that. And surely do not follow him. But if he is alive, but if he is alive, as he is, then everything he said was true. Everything that he claimed about himself and about the Father and about the gospel and about our life with him, everything he promised was vindicated. Every word that he spoke was made true through the resurrection of Christ. So I, I'm not going to give you some defense of the resurrection of Christ. I think scripture stands very clear. 500 people saw the resurrected Lord. You could have asked one of them. You could have asked one of them. And they would have told you they saw him in flesh and blood. They touched felt him. Paul tells us he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Friends, this morning there is no justification. That means you are not declared right with God. That means you are not in relation with God. That means that God's wrath still remains on you apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ resurrection, if he is not truly alive and interceding for our sin, then we have, of all people, no hope. As Paul says, we are people most to be pitied. We're delusional. We're drunk on our own foolishness. But if Christ Jesus is alive, The hope that this awful day is not the end. The hope that the cancer isn't the end. The hope that death isn't the end. The hope that life in this world is not the end. Friends, if Christ Jesus is alive, then your petty problems and my petty, my, my petty problems will mean nothing in a trillion years from now.
loves me and, and all that and this and the other. But friends, the reality is if you are not living in repentance of sin, if you are not living in this new life, you have no hope to What is sin? Sin is living life your own way rather than God's way. That's what sin is. Sin is willingly choosing to say, you know what, God? I know you say that this is sin, but I don't really care. I'm going to do it. You know, I think I'm going to be happy kind of making my own choices. I'm a free person. I can do whatever I want. And if that's you this morning, then that lifeless body wasn't for That sunrise of joy wasn't for you. The hope of the resurrection isn't for you. But if, by the power of the Spirit, you're willing to lay down your life, take up the cross of Christ, put the hope of the resurrection in your heart, you too can have hope of a new life. That there is yet life after. You'll no longer be defined by your sin. No longer defined by the evil of your life. You can know today that the Lord Jesus does not see you in all of your wickedness and sin. Thanks be to God. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As we consider that final verse. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. Friends, their silence only lasted one moment. The word got out. The word had gotten out for over 2,000 years. And the word, the Lord tarries, will continue to get out. That the Lord Jesus died. That he is alive, he is waiting to meet you. Gracious Father in heaven, we give praise and glory to you. That indeed Christ Jesus is alive. He's alive in us. We are alive in him. We are no longer dead. Our trespasses and our sins no longer hang over us. But you, through the cross of Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. You defeated Satan. You conquered the grave. And we are now alive in Christ Jesus. Fill our hearts today with the joy of the resurrection.